Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Hourglass with Isabella. I'm joined by my marvellous co-host, Michael Corvus, and a very special guest tonight, Howard Bloom. Welcome to the show, Howard. Thanks, Isabella. This is only our second time trying to record Only this. our so second time, yeah. Well. yeah. <laughs> and to jump back into the question we had before, we were saying it's, it's difficult to introduce you because you're such an interesting person. You've been an author and written multiple books. You're somewhat of a scientist and academic as well and have dabbled in your lifetime in PR, public relations work. Mm-hmm. For the guests <laughs> listening, how would you describe yourself? Well, uh, I coined a term called omnology. And omnology is a field for the promiscuously curious, for people who are omnivorously curious. And basically, omnology says when your dad sits you down in your sophomore year of college and says, now look, you're interested in art history, you're interested in neuroscience, and you're interested in film. You gotta make up your mind. You're gonna be an art historian, you're gonna be a neuroscientist, or you're gonna be a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And uh, until you make up your mind, your dad says, you're nothing. So analogy is there, so you can say to your dad, no dad, I have three major curiosities. Those are the things that really drive me. Those are my passions. I'm gonna follow those for the rest of my life. And if other passions come up, if other curiosities come up, I'll follow them too. And then when I hit the age of 40 and all my friends are having midlife crises and wondering why they're on planet Earth and buying little red sports cars and picking up blondes if they're men or planning elaborate elaborate divorces to find their, themselves if they're women, um, I will just be coming back from the desert of my multiple curiosities with my first big picture answers, my first ways of piecing together those specializations as pixels in a big picture my friends will feel they're at the end of their lives i will know i'm at the beginning of mine so i've been following an ontological trajectory since i was 10 years old when i was 10 nobody in my hometown of buffalo new york would have anything to do with me including my parents and i discovered through books that there were these guys named galileo and anton von Leeuwenhoek, the inventor of the microscope and they couldn't reject me because i was because they were dead so they became my gang and i started reading two books a day um in science and science fiction and by the age of 12 i was schlepped to the head of the graduate physics department at the university of buffalo for what i would imagine was just a courtesy visit five minutes it turned out to be an hour and five minutes because we were discussing the hottest scientific topic at the time big bang versus steady state theory of the universe and the interpretation of the doppler shift And he came out of his office after an hour and put his hand on my shoulder and stood behind me and said, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get fellowships in theoretical physics at any school he wants. And the same year I built my first Boolean algebra machine, I co-designed a computer that won some science fair awards, and I was tutored in outside the box science by the head of the company that made the valves for the first plane to break the sound barrier and the first plane to reach the edge of space. So science, has been my field, but because omnology allows you to include all of your passions in building a bigger picture, at the age of 12, I realized um, there was something missing from the religion of my parents. Um, Their synagogue was set up like a Lutheran church. Um, It had hardwood pews to get into your space in the middle of their hardwood pews. You had to go over everybody else's knees and you were trapped. Um, and you got up when the rabbi told you to, sat down when he told you to, and you sang when he told you to. There was no passion in there. There was no transcendent experience there. Um, and there were no ecstasies. 
And I realized that I don't know how at the age of 12. And so finding the gods inside of us, finding those, the, the divinity is not something that exists out there. It's an emotion inside of us. And finding the divinity within us and figuring out what in the world it was, finding the soul inside of us became a passion. So when I graduated from NYU with graduate uh, um, fellowships in four, at four different universities in what is now called neuroscience, I, but I was didn't have a name yet and I was gonna have to piece it together myself back then. I took a, a right-hand turn. I realized that grad school would be Auschwitz for the mind. I'd never get near these elemental ec ecstatic passions that I was interested in. I never get into, I'd never get anywhere near the gods inside. And I went into something I knew absolutely nothing about, popular culture, and I knew nothing about it because popular culture was the music of the kids who used to beat me up. And I ended up founding the biggest PR firm in the music industry. And I totally redid the way that publicity was done in the music industry because, I, you know, I'm coming from to this from science. I see the, the, the rituals that have been habitual in the field of PR and the music industry that don't work. I don't need them. I don't have to go along with them. I'm not part of the crowd anyway. Why, why go for acceptance by doing traditional things? And instead, I substituted things that I could demonstrate worked using simple correlational studies. Um, the mathematical gains I'd learned from the mathematical games section of the Scientific American when I was a kid, when I was 12 years old. And the result was that I ended up working with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, um, Peter Gabriel, uh, David Byrne, um, a whole mess of people. Everyone, yeah, everyone. Michael yeah. had to help yeah. me out. I'm from a different generation of Wilson. He was. Uh, good. I'm I've been geeking out for like for the past weeks that we knew we were uh, getting ready to interview you. I mean, it's like I, I think probably one of the biggest things uh, that, that I see is like you, you've got a brain. You, you've got a. Uh, a, 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 a so, social scientist that is uh, going into the realm of PR basically as an applied, uh, it, it, you became one of the greatest uh, PR people in all of time for, for, for rock and uh, pop musicians as basically kind of a lark, uh, just to prove your theories out. <laughs> if, if I'm, well, if I'm it, wasn't, it wasn't a lark, it was, right? deep, it, it was deeply serious. I had been pursuing this since I was 12 years old and I was looking for the gods inside of us. And this was an opportunity to go where almost no one has the privilege of treading into the dark underbelly where new myths and movements were made. And since that's one of the things that interested me along with, well, I've been, I've been published or given lectures at scholarly conferences in 12 different scientific fields at this point. Yeah. So, but it was one of the keystones. It was one, science is about omnivorous curiosity. That's where the word omnology the really comes appetite from. appetite for learning. Yeah. And yes, I will say, exactly. we've actually been listening to your Lucifer book. You can get it on Audible. We actually got the audio rendition of it, which is great. If you guys want to check it out, you can find it. Oh, Audible. it is. And, I, and, I, and, and I, it's so good. I, I, I love the chapter by chapter. So it, it's, it's kind of, a, it's very self-contained in the fact that it is bringing you back to like, you know, different concepts. A lot of times you'll, you'll find an academic novel or, or an academic uh, book uh, that will be hyper-focused on one thing. Uh, but it is taking you all the way back saying, like, look it, here's where we started. 
here's how we got here. Here's the, the, the precepts of where it's getting here. Here's the evolutionary biology that, that brings you up to this point. Okay, congratulations. By chapter seven, you're approaching, you know, Homo sapiens and the, the, the Neanderthals, this. And then there's more that like shows like, and this is why we think this. This is why you have, you know, your, your lizard brain, your mammalian brain, and then yes. this very thin little veil oh, over, you know, your, your cerebral cortex, which allows you to pick out like Reeboks versus Nikes or something like you know it, 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 it's very fascinating, oh, it's fascinating. To me. yeah it, you know how we how we how we develop and and I've always had a curiosity interest in this and and when I said almost as a lark it was in no way shape or form being being sliding just saying like you you have this concentration this interest this understanding of, of, of human biology and your treat and you became one of the greatest PR people ever as an applied science to what you what you learned uh, when most people that would have been their entire life and, right. yeah. and so okay so uh, yeah all right and I was learning I was learning every step of the way because only one in a million of us possibly one in a billion of us really get to work at those central cores where new myths and movements are made Yes. Very few of us get to stand next to the gods inside and learn how to feed them, um, learn how to guide them, um, or learn how to make them. I mean, so, I didn't have, yeah, I, but I didn't have super service in my company when I started out. And my leading competitor used to say, don't go with Bloom. He's never gotten the magazine cover in his life. Go with us. We've had Paul McCartney and David Bowie and Mick Jagger on the cover of everything in sight. What he didn't tell you was he didn't build those people up to the point where they were magazine cover material. He got them after they were already magazine cover material. Right, you were more right? building uh, the people up. And when I mentioned yes, you exactly. have a specific book that's called what was the one about the sixties? How oh, 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 how, how I, I accidentally started the sixties. Yeah. Well that is the that's the one I next want to read. What's what's the notion behind that book? If you could tell us a little bit about it. Well, it, it, it's a, a what do they call it? A coming of age um, book, except it's nonfiction. It's just that I tried to write it as hilariously as I possibly could. Um, and it's about the stage in life, uh, at roughly the age of 12 and a half, you start differentiating from your parents. And you really don't want to hang around with them and they don't want to hang around with you. And you actually smell bad to your parents and they smell bad to you. Um, and so you're sort of driven out of your house and you have to establish your own identity. And you do it by hanging out with, well, peer groups. I didn't have peer groups, so <laughs> I didn't have the privilege of that. Don't worry, you had um, your gang of dead people to help you out. Like I had Tesla was one of mine. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. terrific. Yeah. So Tesla and Doc Holliday. Doc Holliday and Edgar Allan Poe. Let's not forget him. Wow. Yeah. Well, Doc Holliday, you mean the, the gunfighter? Yeah, the gunslinger. Yeah. He was one of my dead pals. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So you know what I'm talking about. If you I ever do. get close to the kinds of gods that, you, that have loomed large in your life, it is a miracle. And I had the privilege of not only spending time with the people who evoked the gods inside and manifested them, but of building them to the point where they could get that across to the public, where they could reach that incredible ecstatic connection yes. that I've been after since the age of 12. So, and again, science, the obligation of science is to be omnivorous. And that means to look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before, to look for things that science 
doesn't contemplate, but are parts of reality, very important parts of reality. Yes. And the ecstatic experience and everything that I experienced being at the very height of rock and roll. I mean, I was with Michael when he just sold 36 million albums, which was three times as many as the biggest selling artist. Michael before Jackson. Him. Is that yes. people yeah. Say, oh, just yes. If, and, if and there's he was, another I know Michael. you're Michael. Yeah. I think amazing. <laughs> right. Well, so Michael Jackson was bigger than the Beatles and Elvis Presley combined. Okay. At that point. That. Cool. And that's a very strange experience working. Uh, first of all, Michael was an experience in himself because he was the closest thing to an angel I'd ever met on earth. And I never imagined there could be a person like him ever. Um, I mean, he had a quality of awe, wonder, and surprise that was utterly unbelievable. Um, and when I got into science at the age of 10, it was because I learned two rules from a book, the first two rules of science. The truth at any price, including the price of your life. And the book gave the example of Galileo and it told his story all wrong. It told him as if he would be willing to go to the stake to defend his truth, not true. But it took me 30 years to discover that wasn't true. So the first law of science, the truth at any price, including the price of your life is the law of courage. The second law of science is look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. And that is the law of awe, wonder and surprise. Well, Michael Jackson was the living embodiment of awe, wonder, and surprise. And in a way, that made him a living embodiment of the first rule of science, the truth in any price, including the price of your life. And I never imagined in my wildest fantasies that a person like him could exist. So how many people get to work at that level where you're getting a minimum of 300 phone calls a day? You wake up, you're out on the road with Michael Jackson and his brothers. Um, you, you've told the, the, the switchboard at the hotel to switch off all calls between three o'clock in the morning and eight so you can get five hours of sleep. And when you wake up, there are 300 phone calls waiting for you. That's and that, that changes you physically because it gets probably the endogenous amphetamines in your system. Um, the natural speed in your system, adrenaline. It's it's, it's it gets what, your what you even well, it gets your adrenaline running at a at a level that most that most people never experience in their lives. Lifetime, yes. Yeah, it's yes. it's 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 like I mean you you, you even touch on this uh, in 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 uh, the Lucifer principle as as, as far as um, from our past experiences you're only meant to know so many people like if, if evolutionary biology had gone Allows in a certain, to, certain yeah. direction and now uh, you know in the modern era we have so many more connections so many more points of contact be it whether it's email uh, phone uh, text messages social media you you have all these things uh you know coming for you any given time you can be very easily overwhelmed. So and that 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 leads me into my next question, ironically. Right. But would you say, Howard, having worked with many of these celebrities, we talk about you know your book in the Lucifer concept, that celebrities almost become in a way like demigods in their lifetime, and by that I mean on a sociological scale, they deal with so much more than the average human being like you were talking about all those calls all these things even if you're working pr you get a taste of that coming in it is so much exposure and extreme idolization or putting people up on a pedestal 
people knocking them down in a mob style frenzy, whatever it we do as humans in groups, it's almost impossible whatever. to live up to. And it takes an exceptional person to be able to carry that burden and really understand. I think very few people see the human side of a celebrity. Would you say they suffer from that? Have you seen that? The only one who suffered of my clients was John Mellencamp, and there's a reason. I want to tell you a story from when I was 16 years old. Okay. So I'm 16 years old and I'm in high school, and the kids hate me. Um, that's normal. It's what I've experienced all my life. But there's this thing called the Program Committee, which programs five school assemblies a week. You know, those assemblies that start every single day, 45 minutes. And the head of the Programming Committee gets to program two of those and MCs five of them. And for reasons beyond my ken, the kids in my junior year um, elect me as the head of the program committee, which means I'm, I'm up in their face every single day as the MC of the program that starts their day. And I program two of these. Well, one day the juniors came to me. So by this time, I must have been in my senior year. They kept me in this position for two years. And, um, and they said, look, we're having a dance. Could you please advertise it for us? And they didn't understand the irony of what they were asking. If there were a dance or a party of any kind, anywhere in Buffalo, New York, I was cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland or Albuquerque. So, and, and, and here they were asking me to advertise this ritual in which I would not be welcome at all. But I did it. I put a record on the turntable. Now, I can't dance. My parents sent me to dance lessons for a year. It didn't do any good whatsoever. I can't do the foxtrot. I can't do the, the, the waltz. Yeah, I can't do any of these things. Um, so when I went in front of the audience with this music behind me, my form of dancing was something no human on planet Earth had ever seen before. It was like a Looney Tune drawn on a night when Chuck Jones who did the loon, drew the Looney Tunes All the voices. and taken LSD. Okay, yeah. Or the, the direction, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so I saw the face of the girl who hated me most in the school melting. I saw her eyes widening. I saw her pupils dilating. I saw that happening with every single one of the 350 people in that auditorium. I saw their energy come together like a collective blob, like an amoeba. Yeah and reach a pseudopod, a tunnel, out to me. And that, I had an out-of-body experience. I was on the ceiling watching all of this take place. And the energy of the audience flowed through that tunnel, through me as if I were an empty pipe, up to somewhere around my head, was utterly transmogrified, and flowed back down to the audience again in a continual feedback loop, a reverberatory loop. It was fucking astonishing. I had, I, uh, you know, here I've been- I know what it is. You know, we call it, we call it the current. Because it's like right. a river. That's the only word, right. the current. Yeah. Oh, it's very much a fluid, it's a fluid thing. Fluid. But here's what happened. When the song ended, the audience did something it had never done before in my time at that school and never did again. Not for football heroes, not for homecoming queens, for nobody. It surged down to the foot of the stage. They picked me up on their shoulders. Um, and they carried me out of the auditorium, up the path to the building where we had our classes. And only when we reached that building did they put me down. They did it perfectly, as if they'd been rehearsing this. It was astonishing. So, Sounds amazing. When she, so I had an understanding of what my artists went through that came when they were on stage, that came from this experience. Rush. Yes. 
So John Bellingham, and, and, and you were able to, to, to take that experience and apply it and understand what kind of like that, that ribbon of truth, that ribbon of uh, energetic connection between you and the, the adulating, uh, you know, masses. Everything's an energy exchange. It, 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 it is. Curious. It really is. It really is. I think people at concerts, when you get a good artist on stage and they're in their element, they're almost, you're feeding off the energy of the audience and vice versa. There is. And it reaches a climax, almost like an orchestra I, moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I frequently, uh, you know, uh, drawn parallels between, like, you know, ancient uh, religious practices where there is. I mean, it can like, go the other way as well. Don't get me wrong. You know, whether it's like, you know, you, whatever modern day religions or anything else where you you have you know one or two people up front and then oh, they're, prayer. They're, states of prayer. yeah, yeah this it's like the, the benediction after prayer or something like that where you're sitting there you're in the pews you're 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 experiencing this thing and and for some reason you feel this connection whether it's somebody reading from a book or performing or See, I you never, have, I never got to experience that. Well, so you know, the, the the best thing is like I, I mean, I would find this at music concerts. Yes, I, I would find yeah, but... more benediction at music concerts where you have this like raw energy of like one transmitter up on stage, bringing it out to, to you, and you just people. like you have an out of body experience. You're losing yourself to the moment, yes. which being right, in the, and present, the artist, the, the artist on stage being danced as if he were a marionette by forces much bigger than himself is yes. basically the tongue, the articulator of the soul of that audience. Um, it is That's allowing it. the beautiful. audience and it allows the audience to see themselves and get validation for things in themselves they never had validated before and it makes them feel less like isolated, insane people. Oh, we all have lots of feelings we think are insane. Oh, we and, yeah, and you become a mirror. You become yeah. a mirror. You become a reflection. Uh, but you also show them that they are not alone, that they are part of a movement, that they are part of the 3,000 or 17,000 or 70,000 people in that room. Exactly. So can we talk um, about can we talk about Woodstock for a second? What are your feelings um, about? Yes, I didn't I didn't go there, but um, well, it was the ultimate ecstatic experience. Rock That's why I was thinking. Yeah. Just, well, as Michael and you have described, they are the rituals in which the gods come alive in our modern society. Secularized gods. Um, that's the ecstatic experience that I was talking about. That's what was going on at Woodstock as millions of people discovered through Woodstock they had a common identity and they were not alone. Um, and Woodstock came at that critical moment when this group felt, again, isolated and insane and when they could be made to feel validated. Um, so, you know, these are some of the things that I learned there in Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, A Search for Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll, which is my latest book. And it is about a search for soul. Where, where can we um, find your latest book? Is it on Amazon? On Amazon. Yeah. Um, it's, the, it's the easiest place to get any book in the world. <laughs> so, it is. It's so, true. It's easy at a touch so, of your fingertips. I, I remember when it was so, just books. So back at the think about era. think about how many scientists have framed the mystery we're talking about as a scientific problem to be solved. There are almost none, and with the exception of Emil Durkheim, who died a hundred years ago, and was one of the founders of, of uh, sociology, and um, and how many that might have that question in mind what is the group ecstatic experience 
how many of them have gotten to be at the very center yes. of these things? How many of them have gotten to experience these things as someone on stage? So back to whether this was a painful burden. So um, there was a story circulating in the 1970s. Eric Clapton was on heroin. He was adored by his fellow artists. George Harrison of the Beatles tried to get him off of heroin and failed. Um, so Peter Townsend, the founder of The Who, which was a big group back then, stepped in. And he said to uh, Eric Clapton, look, I understand why you use heroin. You go on stage, um, you are an empty pipe, the souls of 17,000 or 70,000 people flow through you to the Godhead, because um, at that point, Peter Townsend was into Mayor Baba, and they're transformed in the Godhead and sent back to these people, and you are a living pipe for the souls of 17,000 or 70,000 people. Then, the minute you come off stage and you go behind the curtain, those 70,000 souls of the Godhead that have all been in you disappear, and you are an empty pipe, and it hurts, and you use heroin to fill that emptiness. Well, that's, it's a, it was, it's an extremely good description of the experience, and Mellencamp is one of the most, John Hoover Mellencamp is one of the most extraordinary onstage performers I have ever seen in my life. He, Prince, um, Billy Idol, Joan Jett are all extraordinary performers, but John is just transcendent. And so John goes on stage and he loses all sense of himself. God knows where his self is parked. Maybe it's on the ceiling like mine was in my out-of-body experience being on stage, but who knows? And then he comes off stage and he looks as if he looks totally hollowed out. He looks so hollowed out that his eye sockets no longer look like they have eyes in them. They just look like they're big, dark shadows. And he is without a self because the selves that possessed him are gone. And we have to guide him backstage to a little room that we can lock so nobody gets to see this transition. And it takes him an hour for his normal self to return. So for John, this was an incredibly painful experience. And every time in that little room by himself, when his real self, his normal self, God knows which is the realer self of the two, they're both real, they're both important. But when his normal everyday self returned, said, I'm never gonna do this again. I'm never gonna tour oh, again. Oh, so, for, so for John, it was painful. For Michael, it was not painful, for Michael Jackson. Um, for Prince, I don't know. I never got to hang around with him, close to him backstage the way that I did with my other performers. Um, but I saw Joan Jett performing three months ago in Connecticut. And she was terrified because, you know, we're not finished with uh, Omicron yeah. yet. Um, and she didn't want to get sick. It was her first performance in God knows how many years. And she was terrific. And the audience gave her a standing ovation when it was over. And I went backstage and I was the only person they allowed backstage the only person of any kind they allowed backstage. So I went into this huge concrete backstage area and there was Joan's manager, who also is her songwriter, producer, um, and everything, Kenny Laguna. And I recognized him immediately, although he looked on the verge of death compared to the way he looked the last time I saw him 30 or 40 years ago. 
Um, and I gave him a huge hug and there was this little tiny woman next to him in a, a coat, a winter coat, uh, with a mask on. Well, that little tiny crumpled person was Joan Jett. I've always seen her as big, right. as huge, because her personality is huge. has always been big and huge. Larger than life. Larger than life. Yeah, but, yeah, but no, she was, she was a little, she was a little tiny person having to recover from just having been idolized by probably 2,000 people in that room. It's, it's like so, an aftercare moment. It is. Right. So, yeah. so for some, it's, for some, it's, uh, it's hell, it's torture. But it, only Mellencamp really manifested that torture in a big way. And then, as Isabella said, you have uh, the phenomena where an audience allows you to be its tongue, allows you to speak its soul over and over again, on stage and off stage. But if you get really big, and you give that audience that started you off the feeling that you are deserting them, they will turn on you and tear you to pieces. Um, now, I made sure that that never happened to any of my artists, because I knew what engendered it. The feeling on the part of the core audience that it's been abandoned, and their feeling that we made you, now you've ignored us, so we have a right to tear you apart. I would never allow that to happen oh god any one of my clients you might as well have just spoken to my soul on strength when we're done with this uh interview i would love to have a moment to talk to you individually okay i would we'll love do it really yes thank you that would be appreciated I have one more final question we're actually we're past our it's usually a 30 minute podcast but i have I, one we, final we, question we, we could do a seven hour podcast i could do hours got, of this I, easily i've not even scratched the surface of things i want to yeah but oh, yeah. but yes <laughs> So my final question, of all the experiences you had, all these different personas and celebrities and Prometheans in this field, what is your most poignant or favorite memory? Um, it's the memory of the first time I met Michael Jackson. I mean, it almost brings me to tears. Um, I'm serious. Right now, I'm on the brink of tears. Um, it's Michael but, for some reason in the corner. So well, we've lost him. That's, that's a horrible thing. And it's hard for me to imagine. I always speak of him in the present tense because I can't imagine that he's gone. But the fact is, the first time I met Michael, we were at Marlon Jackson's pool house, which is a little two-story building, just big enough to have a big room on the first floor and a corresponding big room on the second floor. And the brothers and I, the brothers were so kind to me, it was ridiculous. And so we were standing at a pool table in the middle of the room looking at merchandise. And I was trying to explain to them that you do the most fantastic show you can possibly do in your lives. And your t-shirts, your jackets have to be the most fantastic anyone has ever seen. And, and they, they're crowded around me. They put me at the center as they stand around me and either uh, on the side of the table. And then I hear the screen door open. Well, I did not grow up among other human beings. They wanted nothing to do with me. So I grew up among guinea pigs and laboratory rats in my bedroom in Buffalo. And I don't know normal human rituals, but when I was 19, somebody taught me that if there's somebody entering the room that other people want you to meet, you walk over, you stick your hand out and you say, hi, my name is fill in the blank. And the other person sticks her name out and shakes your hand and says, hi, I'm so-and-so. So I had never done this. Um, I had read 
roughly 1,500 stories about Michael in which all of them said, Michael is a bubble baby. Um, if you reach your hand out to him, he will shrink away in fear. So the screen door is opening. I walk from my position in between the brothers over to the screen door. I stick my hand out for the first time in my life and say, hi, my name is Howard. And the other person sticks his hand out in a perfectly normal manner and says, hi, my name is Michael. And that's it. It's not a, it's not a, um, a Donald Trump handshake where he tries to destroy you and assert his dominance. It's a normal, mild handshake. And I say to Michael, I've got a press release that I've written. I need your approval on it. Where can I read it to you? And Michael points at the stairs and says, let's go up to the second floor. So we go up to the second floor room that is filled to the literally to the ceiling with amplifiers and keyboards. So Michael finds an amplifier where he can sit. I find an amplifier where I can sit and I start reading this press release to him. Now I've written it myself and I've been obsessed with writing ever since through the pages of a book Albert Einstein told me when I was 12 years old to be a genius it's not enough to come up with another, a theory uh, only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly that yes. anyone with a high school education yes. and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand. Yes. So writing clearly and vibrantly has been a mission that Einstein put me on when I was 12. And I've been obsessed with it. And I've edited the literary magazine at NYU. And we've won two National Academy of Poets prizes. And the poet in residence thinks I'll be the next great poet to come out of NYU. There's a lot that goes into every sentence of what I write. And, but nobody's ever seen it before. So I read the first two sentences and Michael starts to slump on his amplifier. And I read another two sentences and he slumps a little further on the amplifier. And then when I get to the end, he says, man, that's beautiful. Did you write that? Well, of course I had. No one had ever seen the art in it before. No one, and no one ever would again. And then we go downstairs because we have a meeting with the art director from CBS Records. And we all stand on one side of the uh, pool table. She stands on the other side with five of the most gorgeous portfolios you've ever seen, all from legendary artists. She shoves the first portfolio across the table. Now, I'm standing to Michael's left. My right um, shoulder is at his right shoulder. My right elbow is at his right elbow. My right knee is at his left knee. Um, and we're crowded together because the brothers are on either side of us. And Michael starts to open the portfolio and he gets one square inch into the first picture. And he goes, oh, and his knees begin to buckle. How do I know that? Because my knees are coupled to his knees. Um, and he opens it another four square inches. Oh, oh. Oh, Michael is having something I never imagined in my life. The living manifestation of the second law of science. Look at things right under your nose as if you've never seen them before and then proceed from there. The law of all wonder and surprise. Michael has seen more in the first four inches of this picture than the artist ever saw. He has come closer to William Blake seeing the infinite and the tiniest of things than anyone I ever imagined on earth. So. I have loved Michael, I guess you'd have to say as a soul brother, a person who expressed in his life something that was deeply important to me um, ever since. And imagining that he's gone is very difficult. But I 
will say, I think it's beautiful. Something always says, like, when we lose people, the most beautiful thing about it is that the memories that we contain, the stories, they always remain with us. And it's like we are carrying on the legacy. Like if you lose someone, they have a, still have a little room. Like imagine your house is a, you have a little house in your heart and you have little rooms for everyone you've ever met. And some people That's have bigger rooms image. than others. Yeah, some people right. have bigger rooms than others. But yeah. the people that you love and you care about who have profoundly impacted you in your lifetime, you know, they have a larger room. And if you keep that alive, they, nobody's really dead. I mean, time is relative. The whole thing's happening simultaneously. So I'm not too worried about that. But I do think it's fascinating just to hear your stories. I'm really appreciative of the time you took to down the podcast. You've without a doubt been our most interesting guest. And we've had NASA scientists and all sorts of fun things. I just think this one strikes home a little bit more. It very much does. Yeah, it really does. So uh, we, well, I could I could spend like you know. Oh, we could spend the hours. Next well, can I, can I tell you one little addendum to the Michael yes, story? Please do. Is there time? It's okay. Time. So For you, in yes. the book, For you, yes, in my, else. <laughs> right in, in, in my book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me: A Search for Soul in the Power of Bits of Rock and Roll. There is a comparison. It points out that back in 1954. Um, every sports physiologist on planet Earth knew with absolute certainty that no human could ever break the four-minute mile. It was physiologically impossible. And then a med student and his best friend, another med student, went to work analyzing everything he did when he was running, getting rid of every single energy-losing gesture, and he broke the four-minute mile. And his name was Roger Bannister. And when he broke the four-minute mile, he opened the envelope. He just pushed out the bounds of the envelope of human possibility a little bit. And since then, over 1,800 people have done the impossible, according to sports physiologists, and have broken the four-minute mile. Every major international competitive runner is expected to break the four-minute mile. Yes. Well, in the same way that Roger Bannister broke open the boundaries of the possible in running, Michael Jackson broke open the boundaries of the possible in love, commitment to truth, and most of all, awe, wonder, and surprise. And I have written this book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, to give you a sense of who Michael really was. Because if you know who he really was, it will open the bounds of your own perceptual envelope. And if it goes far enough, it can open the perceptual envelope of all humankind, because that is Michael's legacy and it needs to get across. I think that's beautiful. That is true. That is very beautiful. And I think that is the, the perfect ending for this podcast, honestly. Yeah. I really do. Thank you so much for your time. Howard, honestly, it's been really appreciated. Of course, it's Michael, very... thank you for your time as oh, well as always. It's awesome. yeah. Thanks very much. Well, Isabella and Michael, it's been a pleasure. Of course, so without further ado, good night and sleep tight.